Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Good evening. Happy Halloween, Miami. The fact that a Billy Joel bootleg is named after a Bruce Springsteen song should clue in the listener that this show's a little different than what you may expect. Recorded at Maurice Guzman Concert Hall in Miami, Florida on October 31st, 1977, Thunder Road isn't a radical change from the Billy we know, but there's a big focus on a part of his live act that never quite made it onto official records. It's his skill at impersonating other musicians both their playing and their personalities, that shine at this show. This recording also captures a curious moment in Billy's career. It's at the beginning of the Stranger Tour, just before the record broke wide open and made Billy a household name. The show is more streamlined than recordings from a few years prior, but not quite as realized as his performances would be in just a few more months. It also features a temporary lineup with a short-lived guitar player. Join us as we dive deep into a show from Billy Joel on the eve of superstardom. In an unusual scheduling move for us, we're recording this on a Saturday morning. It's 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Michael's Time. We're doing this in part because it's supposed to get up to 112 degrees this week out in Washington State, and poor Michael now has to review a bootleg from Miami. So, sorry, buddy. <laughs> right? There's no escaping the heat It feels this time. like the end of the world over here right now. <laughs> I can only imagine. It's insane. Um, as you guys know, sometimes we record episodes a bit in advance just to try to get ahead of things. It's Saturday, June 26th right now, so to put it into context... We are just ramping up to this historic heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. I live in Longview, Washington. The hottest it has ever been in this town is 108 degrees on one day in August of 1981. So we're talking songs in the attic, how long it's been. Tomorrow, it's supposed to be 112 here. It's insane. To get a good, clean audio recording, if you're an audio guy, you know... No air conditioners, no fans, no nothing. So I'm in a bedroom right now, completely closed off. No ventilation, (laughs) no cooling going on. So that's a big reason why we're starting early. So uh, I'm not sweating by the end of this thing. Yeah, I mean, my fan's off. It's a little humid, but not nearly as bad. So this is what we do. When they say uh, it's a labor of love, it's a passion project. This is what that means. That's right. (laughs) Now, with all that in mind, I sort of showed my ass a little to Michael last night because uh, I hadn't listened to this all the way through yet. I was planning, which I did. I did my homework on the bus. I did it this morning before we got on the call. And I said, I don't know. This one isn't really that exciting. It doesn't seem like there's anything that that interesting or relevatory in it. I stick to that to a small degree, but there are a lot of interesting nuggets. I put down in my notes that I think this one is more of an artifact than a good listen. First of all, the sound's not amazing, and the versions here are really streamlined. And when I put this into context of the Billy Joel timeline, particularly of 1977, you'll see why that's notable. 
But there are some quirky things in here. There are a few things that you, we won't see in another concert. Certainly nothing that's bootlegged. Archaeologically, definitely worth a listen, but I don't think I would put this one on as readily as maybe CW Post or something like that. This is uh, a fun listen. I, I like listening to these shows considerably because of how much you can hear the live show develop in a fairly short amount of time. I mean, if you think about it, the Billy Joel Tonight recording from just the year prior, 1976. Now, the band sounds fine and everything like that, but the live show wasn't quite gelled with this group yet. To see it develop so quickly and in a very short succession of time, he was graduating from the clubs and theaters and colleges to the small coliseums to the big coliseums by 1980. It's really interesting, even if there's nothing huge going on in this show, just to see how rapidly things grew and developed. And we'll get a little more into that timeline and development in a moment. But for now, let's dig into the old email bag here. We got a couple good responses to our album opener rankings episode a few weeks back. These three came into email. I'm pretty sure there's a few more out there on Facebook, but we'll just hit these for now. First one comes from our friend Rick Neal. He says, hi lads, really enjoyed your album openers episode. I paused it before you started your lists and made my own. I sat in the garden with all the songs on torn up sheets of paper with my very confused dog in the all too rare English sunshine. And he sent us a photo of that too, which was pretty funny. You see like the little strips of paper on the grass. Totally interesting way to lay it out. I had Allentown on top. Dead last was No Man's Land, which I find really boring. I always think the dynamic start and lyrical themes of Shades of Grey would have been a better opener for the River of Dreams album. And you know, as I read that, I think on the episode, I at least said that I couldn't imagine any other song starting the album. Yeah, I'll give it to Rick. I think Shades of Grey would have worked. I think one-two punch of Shades of Grey into No Man's Land would have been really turbulent in a good way. That would have been a nice, powerful statement to open the record, certainly. I, I didn't even consider that when we were talking about it, um, but that, that certainly would work. So let's see what Rick has. Starting from 13 down to 1, we have No Man's Land, Running on Ice, That's Not Her Style, Traveling Prayer, Street Life Serenader, Say Goodbye to Hollywood, She's Got Away, Miami 2017, You May Be Right, Easy Money, Big Shot, Moving Out, and Allentown. And I think it's about right in the middle of where you and I landed, too. The big difference on mine, like I had Miami and you may be right uh, near the top of my list. Otherwise, certainly some similarities. Another one from across the pond, as they say. This is Mark from Liverpool. He says, hi, guys. Great podcast. This is my top 13. Actually wrote it out before listening to your podcast. Did it in five minutes, purely based on my favorite songs and what they mean to me. 13 down to one. Running on Ice, No Man's Land, That's Not Her Style, Street Life Serenader, Easy Money, Traveling Prayer, She's Got Away, You May Be Right, Allentown, Say Goodbye to Hollywood, Big Shot, Miami 2017, and Moving Out. Then he says, also just to mention, I first heard Miami 2017 around 1978 and actually saw him open his concert at MSG in 2017 with it. Very surreal. Love your podcasts. Take care. To get to see Miami open a show in 2017, that would have been pretty sweet. I feel like that was the consistent opener much of that year for good reason, obviously. But yeah, that would have given me some goosebumps. So this next list is from Justin Aylett. 
And he says, here is my list with a caveat. And let's see if you guys can spot which the caveat is. So we've got 14 songs here. Starting at number 14, going down to one. We've got That's Not Her Style, No Man's Land, Easy Money, Say Goodbye to Hollywood, Big Shot, Wonder Woman, She's Got Away, Allentown, You May Be Right, Moving Out, Street Life Serenader, Running on Ice, Traveling Prayer, and Miami 2017 from Songs in the Attic. I like this guy. Traveling Prayer and Miami 2017 are right up top, close to my heart. You and I sparred a bit on Traveling Prayer. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. Interesting that he uh, he decided to throw an Attila song in yeah. there. Nobody went uh, double secret probation and went back to the hassles, but that's fine. He's got Wonder Woman next to She's Got Away on his list. And it just boggles my mind that those two songs were released only like a year apart. Yeah, it's notable when you think about what people's musical careers are really like. I mean, when you think about maybe someone like David Bowie, you hear this guy? You hear this guy? Somebody else has got a list. What's that? Traveling Prayer is a great opener? Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> I can't. That's no shit. <laughs> I don't even know. Oh, man. We went so far off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's try. Okay, so, um, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's it's funny when you, you know, I think we tend to think of, of these artists when they hit as being birthed as musical phenomenons fully formed. And sometimes you forget that, you know, artists listen to a much wider variety of music than they play. You know, at some point you have to kind of get in your lane and, and do your thing and establish your thing. Obviously people vary from that, but you know, you forget that. So it is telling that, yeah, Wonder Woman and She's Got Away came out in such rapid succession. Yeah. Cause while he was listening to the singer songwriters of the day and crafting that era of his songwriting, he was certainly listening to some Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple. And you can see that early on wanting to be the rock star. And then it just shifted dramatically where he was like, I don't want to be a rock star. I want to be a songwriter and let other people make my songs famous. It's interesting how much that changed. So speaking of change and transitions, mm. <laughs> this show is like the eve of his big success. I want to give you guys a timeline of the pretty much the second half of 1977, because this really puts this concert into context. May 6th is CW Post. So that was out on Long Island, string of shows, radio broadcast, band is on fire, band is loose in the best way, so energetic, really just, just blowing out, pulling out all the stops. Also that year, Star Wars comes out, and that comes into play a little later. Less than a month later, Billy plays Carnegie Hall, and meets Phil Ramone. Now just listening to the difference between CW Post and Carnegie Hall is stark. And I think what we need to do next is we need to go prior to CW Post and listen to a few from if there's anything from the beginning of 77 or end of 76, because I want to see if CW Post is an outlier because maybe that was just a wild hometown show yeah. or maybe that was the end of the wild shows and we see him streamlining from Carnegie Hall down to this one. At any rate... So CW Post and Star Wars are in May. Carnegie Hall, beginning of June. He then goes in to record The Stranger in July and August. The Stranger releases September 29th of 1977. Moving Out as the single comes out that month. Yep. Now we record Thunder Road, October 31st, 1977. Next month, November of 1977, 
that's when just the way you are comes out. So he is literally on the cusp of stardom here because the single wasn't out yet. In this recording, you hear, I really think you, you hear him streamlining in that way that artists do. I think if, if you followed a band from their humble roots or anything like that, you, you always see that point where they stop dicking around on stage and they get real serious and they start putting on a show and they become less of a ramshackle bunch of guys or girls going up there and, and you know bleeding all over the stage, so to speak, and it becomes more polished. And this is really a moment, and I think a little more than Carnegie Hall. The live show starting to get more streamlined and a little bit more polished. And you would see so much more of that as we got into the 52nd Street and Glass Houses tours, certainly by the time they graduated into arenas. Mm -hmm. But I, I do feel like this is more of a concise set, meaning there's a little less unscripted banter, it feels like. Really, all we get is a couple times where he warms up the Moog in, in terms of noodling. I don't think there was much more than yeah. that. And the banter here was clearly scripted, which we'll also get into. We keep teasing this. And so, as we mentioned, this was recorded Halloween, October 31st, 1977 in Miami at Guzman Hall, which is now known as the Olympia Theater, still running in Miami. Hmm. And the band here is obviously Billy Joel. We had Liberty DeVito on drums, Doug Stegmeyer on bass, Richie Kanata on sax, organ, and flute. And the guitar player for this show is a guy named Frank Vento who did just a short portion of the Stranger Tour. So there's not many recorded examples of him playing with Billy Joel, but this is probably the best of them. I feel like his guitar is kind of way up on the Stranger, which was fun. Just to give him a quick spotlight for someone that we really don't hear anything else from. For a guy who played with Billy for only a couple months at the most, uh, he sounded great. It's funny because I had to do a double take later in the show when they introduced the band because I just had assumed it was Howie Emerson. And before we get into the set list, this is an interesting breakdown. This is a breakdown of how many songs from each album that Billy had played. Now, granted, by this point, The Stranger had been out. So The Stranger comprised the lion's share of the set list. We had eight songs from The Stranger, six songs from Turnstiles, five songs from Piano Man, three songs from Street Life Serenade, and we had four songs that were snippets of covers. So we see him already starting to eschew his West Coast albums and really trying to focus on what he did with the Lords. Between The Stranger and Turnstiles, which were the East Coast records at the time, we had 14 songs from those two albums. And he played almost the entire Stranger album and six out of eight songs from Turnstiles. So let's look at this set list here. And let's leave out the covers for now because we'll mention them as they come up. I want them to be surprises as they were for, for the listener the disc lists the mexican connection as the first song but that's just the canned walk-on music that wasn't performed live so the first actual song they perform is the stranger and then we get somewhere along the line summer highland falls piano man scenes from an italian restaurant travel and prayer moving out just the way you are prelude angry young man new york state of mind the entertainer Vienna, Root Beer Rag, She's Always a Woman, I've Loved These Days, Miami 2017, The Ballad of Billy the Kid, Captain Jack. Then we get an encore, Say Goodbye to Hollywood, Only the Good Die Young, Get It Right the First Time, and Weekend Song. That's the thing with, with new albums when they come out. I'll, you know, Also, 
you know, one, the artist is promoting the record, but two, they're excited about the new material, so they like to play quite a bit of it. But to do eight songs on this show is pretty, pretty incredible. That's quite a large chunk of the record that had only been out for a month this time. To that point, recall that we didn't know this was going to be a monster hit, nor did Billy. Perhaps he was banking on it. Exactly, because Turnstiles did not do well by all accounts. The Stranger, you know, certainly they knew they had a great record, but the future success was still a question mark at this point. Every time an artist comes out with a new album, they pepper in like this, new songs. But with that comes older songs falling their way out of the set. This is a prime example of that with a almost a third of the set list being one album. So let's jump in. After the walk-on music to Mexican Connection, we get, at least in bootleg land, the premiere of The Stranger. Yeah, and I just love this song as an opener. You don't often hear it as an opener, and come to think of it, he doesn't always do this one live either. No, he played it, I think, a lot between this and the Nylon Curtain Tour. But yeah, not a ton after that, my recollection. It sets everything up nicely, even with the with the slow burn intro. It still works as an opener. It works, too, in the way, you know, the Mexican connection as the walk on music isn't. It's kind of a laid back, easygoing tune, and it slides decently into the stranger opener. And then when that band kicks in, then it's off to the races. After that, we get somewhere along the line. This is the one where I early on, I realized that he's streamlining stuff a lot. There's not much different in the arrangement. It's just a little more muscular. It doesn't have that thinner country, West Coast feel to it. It, it felt like a different Billy Joel in, in that way, like figuring out how to do this song for a bigger audience. Well, a bigger audience and also with the Lords behind them. This is another great song from Piano Man that he doesn't play anymore. And this was a, a big major live song in the 70s. Like they mm. used to play this song all the time back then. After that, we get our first Halloween costume, which I'm assuming is why he did this. He peppered in these little snippets of covers all the way through. He tells him Happy Halloween. Yep. Then after saying Happy Halloween, he does the theme from the old Alfred Hitchcock television show. Yeah, that was funny. He then makes mention that we're on the radio, and he does this a few times and talks about everybody out there in radio land and says, well, I have to watch my language, which is fun, but I think you kind of hear that sort of a lot. I think there's, if you really dig, there's a lot of radio broadcasts where rock and roll's like, ooh, ooh, gotta watch my language. Certainly Anthrax did it. That was the other other big recorded one I thought of in the 80s. And then he says, but they can't see this. And then we're going to assume that he gives the audience the finger again. Right. (laughs) I know. I was curious. I was like, all right, what did he just do there? That's the low-hanging fruit banter that gets the audience going crazy. (laughs) Yeah, right. After that is Summer Highland Falls. We see the songs in the attic ending in place here. I noticed that too. They really had that version dialed in. There's something weird going on there. I don't know if Frank Vento is doing something that we don't see anywhere else, but it sounds like there's two saxophones on Richie's break in the middle. And it can't be Billy on the Moog because he sounds like he has two hands on the piano and there's no one else there. So I have a feeling maybe Frank was harmonizing that part. They do that on Songs in the Attic, too. Do they really? The prominent voicing of the instrumentation during that break is David Brown's electric guitar mm-hmm. with Richie's soprano sax. I have to listen yeah. more closely. I always figured it was either two horns or an overdubbed horn. Yeah, and this 
is the first recorded instance that I can think of of that section of Summer Highland Falls with the guitar and the sax harmonizing with each other because the older versions that I'm thinking of it's just the sax part there. And there were a few points in this where I think not only is this the eve of his superstardom, this is also the prototype for Songs in the Attic. We do see things like this that crop up again on that album. Absolutely. I, I made a couple notes. I'm like, I hope I'm not mentioning Attic too much in my notes. <laughs> and again, it goes back to the whole streamlining thing. Mm-hmm. They're really starting to develop where these songs would ultimately sit in the early 1980s. It's just funny because the last concert we looked at was Houston 79, and we didn't get that feeling from that show. For some reason, this show is the one where we're keying into these moments that end up on Attic. Yeah, and I think a big reason is that Houston show didn't have a lot of crossover. Oh, in the set lists. Yeah, from Attic. Yeah, because this was earlier, so he didn't have the material from 52nd Street to pull from yet. And the Three New Glass Houses songs. And then we get into uh, Billy's first cover of the night. Um, This is his ongoing bit as he says there's going to be special guests. Hmm. And he says, I'd like to bring out my very special guest, Bruce Springsteen, and the crowd goes crazy. (laughs) Uh, And then they quickly learn that it's not Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) I think by the second or third time, they're hip to him that he's joking around. But this first time when he introduces Bruce Springsteen, the car goes crazy. It sounds to me like he goes from sort of mocking Bruce to getting more into it. Because it's almost Bruce Springsteen as spoken by Mr. Ed. It was pretty mocky for the first bit. And then he settles into it and starts to like give it a legit try. So we're going to see a, a few more of these peppered throughout. Uh, but after the bit of Thunder Road... We're going into scenes from an Italian restaurant. And he mentions that it's a new song. We get some extra saxophone work from Richie in the beginning. I think this is a great performance. It's so unlikely that a song with so many changes and a song that's like eight minutes long from Billy Joel is going to work so well in a live setting. But it just absolutely does. This is a prime example of why it has stayed in the set list ever since. It's also most likely going to be considered his masterpiece. All the concerts end with Piano Man, and that's the song he's known for as Billy Joel. But I really think that as time goes on, you know, the music community and listeners separate from the artist and just look at the body of work. I think Scenes from an Italian Restaurant is going to be the big one. Piano Man is the big bar song, (laughs) the big sing-along. Yeah. But I'm with you that Scenes is certainly the masterpiece, his opus. And what's fun about tracking through 1977 We get three distinct versions of this song. We have CW Post, which was the debut, much more frenetic. Then we get the album, and then we get this. There's Carnegie Hall, too. Oh, that's right. It's on Carnegie Hall. So this is a great case study to see how a song can evolve even over a short amount of time. By October here, it's pretty well sitting where it's going to sit for a long time. At the end of the song on the record, and I believe at least on CW Post, Liberty does a fill that's very similar to the opening fill from Only the Good Die Young, which he's gone on to say that he cribbed from Jimi Hendrix's drummer Mitch Mitchell that he does on Up Up From the Skies. And that fill is actually absent here. I was kind of listening for it, and he doesn't do it. Where he kind of goes to the toms a bit? Yeah, that big triplet fill at the end. Another example of Billy streamlining things at this point is is how well he starts enunciating some words. I've made a few notes of this throughout the concert, 
But in this song, I think this is the first one I notice it on. When he says divorce and of course, he really, really lands those R's to make sure they're there. Which isn't even on the album. I think he's really much more conscious about people being able to understand him as these venues get bigger. Coming out of scenes, we go into traveling prayer here. To me, this one seemed a little faster than usual. A little sloppy Joe. The intro took a moment to get on track. This is just a song where I, it's not that I don't like the song. I just don't like it for Billy. <laughs> it just seems like such a left field song for him. And I'm honestly surprised that it still stayed in the set list this long. We've gone through this. I love this song. It is unusual, very unusual in Billy's canon. Certainly the closest he got to country on his arguably most West Coast country album. I wonder if it stayed in because it was just upbeat and had a couple spotlight opportunities in there. You know, Richie certainly gets off some great licks. There was a nice solo section near the end that was really nice. Then we get our next cover, which is Let Me In by Paul McCartney. This one's fun. Yeah, it really is. I, I don't think I was familiar with this song before. I actually want to go check that out. It's a, it's, a, it's a long song, apparently. It's like six minutes or something crazy. Yeah, it was a Wings tune. Yeah. It's that Paul McCartney fun post-Beatles, like, pop your head kind of song. Great melody, silly lyrics, winning combination. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Billy has gone on to do... Beatles and McCartney stuff peppered throughout his career. Yeah. Hearing this one, I was like, wow, I'm kind of bummed he didn't give this one another shot down the road because this one suits him really well. Yeah, he really landed into it very comfortably. You know, to have the the Paul McCartney song, the Paul McCartney voicing and the vocal, but with the Lords giving it the oomph, I thought it was just a, a really nice, nice version. And this couldn't have been an impression, which makes it even funnier. But Billy is still pretending that these people are coming on, which is, you know, an obvious gag at this point. But when he says, OK, I'm back, he sounds like Rodney Dangerfield. And I don't think Rodney was really up there yet. So <laughs> that's just straight New York. <laughs> I thought that, too. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> My recording skipped moving out. Did you find a copy of that? Oh. Yeah, I do. Okay. I've got so it. So you can take this one. <laughs> <laughs> so we go into moving out here, and this is the version with the old intro. Now... You remember by Houston 1979, it's that straight one, two, three, four, count off right into it. This version is the version where it's Richie and Billy on the Moog playing the melody. That's the intro during this era. And then the band falls into it. It's a nice, solid version, but to me, I was, as we're recently coming off of the Houston show, like I said, this is another one that developed so much between 77 and 79. It's a nice, solid version, a little closer to the album version in spots. You know, by 1979, we had the version that we know so well. Coming out of Moving Out, we've got cover gag number three. Still crazy after all these years. Paul Simon. Really does a spot-on impression at the beginning. Slides into his own voice a little. Yeah, and it made me realize how much the young Billy Joel voice is suited for Paul Simon. You're right. I never thought about that, but you really hear it on this one. Yeah, when he still had that nice high tenor, when Billy doesn't push it and just kind of lets it float out there, his voice just really, really sings these songs so well. That leads us to what was about to become a hit, but wasn't yet. And that makes this one really fun to listen to. And that's just the way you are. And right now, it's just another song. It's so wild thinking about it in that context, because like you said, 
it was just a song on the new album at this point. This was one of the last times that he's going to be playing this song live before people start going crazy for it. Right. I mean, no, don't get me wrong. The audience reaction was really good to this song. Clearly, some people knew it already, but it hadn't gone into the stratosphere that it would not long after this. Also, no saxophone solo, really, at the end. This is another one of those versions where he cuts it off. Now we get Angry Young Man. I always love me some nice Moog noodling right before this one as he gets it warmed up. I love those little, you know, behind the scenes, you know, things there where you can kind of see behind the curtain a bit. And, you know, back then, they used to play this song so damn fast. <laughs> they dial it back a couple BPM and it's just a just a tick slower than it has been a lot. And I really like where the tempo sits here. Yeah, it's comfortable. It doesn't feel too labored. It's also not a racehorse. Right. And oddly enough, with it just a little slower, it allows it to drive a little more. That said, there are a couple clams in here. I'm sorry, but I always got to point them out on this song. (laughs) Because it's just such a Herculean task to do that damn intro. That's another thing I like about these raw bootlegs and board tapes that, like, you get the warts and all. These are the human elements of these shows that, you know don't get fixed in the studio with these professional live releases. Right. So that's a part of why I like a lot of these bootlegs is you get to see the little imperfections that make it unique. That said, the harmonies are excellent on it. The Moog sound is spot on to the album, which again, I don't know whether to attribute that to a desire with The Stranger Now Out to be more polished or if he just got lucky with the sound that day or if having the Moog on stage for a few years, he's really learned how to dial it in because those could be finicky is the thing they're susceptible to the atmosphere the air all those kinds of things you know these weren't these the Moog in in particular well all those old synthesizers especially you know these aren't preset patches you don't press a button and get the sound you have to mess with all the dials and, and and the oscillators and to get the sound you want every time there's no and especially those guys man there there was no uh push a button and do it you had to dial it in and for every song and every sound i i just liked billy having the extra keyboard next to him like i've mentioned that before i know but i wish he would have had one with him longer and i get it you know again as the technology got better you streamlined the technology too so it certainly made sense to eliminate it from a logistical standpoint by you know the time richie left you had a dedicated keyboard player so he was handling all that stuff anyway but the charm of billy doing the the Moog and going back and forth between that and the piano. That to me is like mid-70s Billy Joel right there. Now us listeners here out in Radioland miss something going on after Angry Young Man. But I piece together what I think is a decent theory as to what happens. We hear some, you know, sort of movement, something's going on, and the audience cheers. And then Billy says in what sounds like some sort of like Russian or Eastern European accent, I would like to do a song. And then he starts playing... And it sounds like he's doing some sort of like atonal Schoenberg or whomever-esque Schumann, maybe? That was the 12th serial, you know, serial writing. So it sounds very atonal. And then he says, oh, I can't play with these things on my hands. So I think somebody gave him like monster hands because it was Halloween. So he did like a Bela Lugosi Dracula. And then he's trying to play with these things on his hands. And it's like, well, this ain't going to (laughs) work. I can absolutely see that being what played out on stage. And that leads into New York State of Mind. Which, did he do this at Carnegie Hall? And he did the same bit at the beginning. That's right, he did, yeah. So he does the, 
He lights a cigarette and he says the place, this place needs a little uh, sleaze in it. And the funny thing is, with Carnegie, they had just passed the non-smoking thing. And in keeping with Carnegie versus, again, CW Post, this is a pretty faithful rendition. They really messed with it even just a few months prior to this. And now mm-hmm. I think they're realizing that they have to be adults about things and play the song as it's recorded. However, what I notice is that I think Richie is doing his Halloween thing here in that solo because there's a couple things going on. I think he's copping a lot of licks, obviously on purpose. I think he's doing giant steps at some point. Yeah. Now, if you go on YouTube and listen to this at 55 minutes, 35 seconds, that's definitely another song, but I could not place it for the life of me. I think we'll mention this at the end as well, but if anybody else knows what those other licks were, let us know, because I'm really curious. Did you happen to notice the uh, dedication? Reggie Jackson? Well, it dedicates it to the best baseball team in the world. Yeah, and then he says Reggie Jackson, too. (laughs) South Florida, Miami, that's New York territory. Oh, the retirees? the New Yorkers... Just yeah. traveled down 95 and settled in uh, yeah, Del Boca Vista. <laughs> With their astronaut pens. <laughs> That's right. Seinfeld reference, check. Take the pen. Oh, no. Go ahead. I couldn't. Come on, take the pen. I can't take Do it. Do me a personal no, favor. No, I'm not take comfortable. The pen. I cannot take it. Take the pen. Are you sure? I'm positive. Take the pen. So we get into the entertainer. And aside from the, the performance itself, On this recording, I start to see why some critics were disdainful of him when he sort of like puts on the bad boy persona. Because he does this a few times where he's like, oh, I better watch my language on the radio. And, you know, he flips, clearly flips people off. And, yo, this place needs a little sleaze in it with a cigarette. And he says, this song got me in a little trouble. Uh, I don't know that it really did. Yeah, I was calling bullshit on that. I was like, (laughs) really? Did it? Are you sure? I think you're trying to create the trouble that wasn't there after the fact. It's a good piece of stagecraft. But a little bit of uh, artistic license on Mm -hmm. the events of that. But the entertainer sounds really good here. I like this version actually more than Carnegie Hall. I always thought Carnegie Hall was a little spare, like they were actually still somehow trying to get their hands around it. And I think they got it here better than they got it back in June. I think the organ really ties it together. The organ was the key this time. They added a bit of reverb to Billy's vocal, a little bit of that slapback reverb, which I actually liked here. Yeah. And um, I really liked Doug's bass work on this song as well. His bass pulses and, and moves really well. It dri- helps really drive it forward. Um, you know, when Doug joined on the Streetlight Serenader tour, you know, so he's been playing this song longer than anybody but Billy. And then we go after the entertainer into Vienna. Not too much to say, in my opinion, about this. Just that it's a little more muscular, and I liked it. Yeah, I thought it had a little bit more punch to it. It's certainly a really nice early version. And it's worth noting, too, that the whole vibe of this song, well, I'm sure we'll touch on it when we get to the Stranger album down the road, but the big choking of the chords and the and the cymbals, it like pulses and like the notes kind of choke to give it much more of a staccato feel. There was mm-hmm. actually a song years ago that Topper wrote i think it was called just called the topper song at that point uh-huh. it's super similar funny enough but billy wrote this song without really knowing that song <laughs> but liberty knew what they were doing with topper where he would like choke the cymbals russell would choke the guitar chords to give it that staccato feel so liberty suggested that to billy and to steve Kahn, the guitar player and all that stuff and it kind of developed from there but some of that had its roots in topper even though Russell didn't play on the record. And now we go into Root Beer Rag. 
it's wild, you know. I'm I'm doing a lot of comparing to Houston 1979, but that's because that's the last show we went through together. Where Houston, I felt it was an artifact of a bygone era almost. Here in 1977, to me, it sits really nicely as a nice little interlude. And maybe it's just because I've been watching a bunch of Marx Brothers and listening to the podcast. But there's a lot of I think there's a lot of humor in this version. But that musical humor that you know, it's just something about the way they play something. Or a funny instrument they use, you know. It's nobody's telling a joke, but it's it's the call and response part that they put in. There's a couple honks and things like that. Those big drastic dynamic changes, I think, are played for laughs to great effect. And they were able to pull it off without it falling off the rails. It's still held together nicely, while with adding injecting that humor. As you're talking about it in terms of Houston '79, it, it's starting to feel a little workmanlike here. It seems to me almost as if Billy's part is becoming rote but the stuff the other guys are adding is what's keeping it fresh. The big place it had in the set list is this was the song that gave Billy a vocal break for three minutes. This is the highway to hell of the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) You know, where the last 20 years he'd bring out Chainsaw to do Highway to Hell and Billy could just sit back. To me, that's what this is. Then we get the next costume, which is You Are So Beautiful by Joe Cocker. Now we know Billy Joel does a good Joe Cocker and Billy Joel does an exceptional Joe Cocker here. It's before it got too far into caricature land, which, like, as the years have gone on, I think it kind of got a little more out there when Billy would do it. But this is really good. Always a woman. I'm starting to realize that I enjoy this one live much more than the studio version. The first time I really noticed it, to be honest, was when we interviewed Malcolm and Michael last year and they played it in the studio when we were talking about Doug and just being up close and personal um, next to the bass on that I was like wow this is this is really something the beautiful piece of music that kind of gets overlooked in a way on the record it did what it was supposed to do but it's so much more than a singer-songwriter song and that's just the way it was produced it was what it was it sits perfectly on the album but there is more to it and that it really blossoms live between that intimate performance I had the absolute pleasure of, of witnessing of being in the room for. And then, you know, when we did last play at Shea, I really keyed into it there too. I really, really enjoyed that version, even with the yeah. ill-timed engagement in the middle of it proposal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, what I like about this one is he really straddles doing a rendition of it, you know, getting through the new song on the new album. Mm-hmm. and being vulnerable. He's guarded in his delivery, but the sincerity is still seeping through. I really did like the uh, guitar and bass on this. They they just moved well together. Uh, so coming out of She's Always a Woman, we go into I've Loved These Days. This is another song to me that just is kind of anemic in a way on the studio album, but works so well, especially in this era as a live song. Just really powerful drums and an incredible vocal from Billy here. Right. This is another proto Songs in the Attic rendition, especially in terms of what Richie's doing. And it occurred to me when I was listening to this, I really love this song. I think I always have. And it's sort of cemented for me as I was listening to this version. I'm like, God damn, this is a good song. It's such an unusual song. It's got so many weird rises and falls in it, more than you would expect someone to put in. As we go into the, the next song, Actually, the next couple songs, really, we're really getting into songs in the attic territory here. So, Because we go into next is Miami 2017. 
with the Moog intro in place, although it feels a little rushed here. It's a little bit rushed, but the seeds are there from that big um, Moog intro that we, you know, love on Attic, certainly. We also get those little sax breaks from Richie that we don't hear on Songs in the Attic, but we know he was doing at least up to that point. I've got that Locked in the Attic or something like that bootleg that has alternate mixes from Songs in the Attic, and I believe there's a version of Miami on here that has some of the sax flourishes in it. That's always such a big mystery to me as to why he took those out, because the record was made to highlight these songs as played by the Lords. I think, you know, because what I don't hear on this version, at least as much, is our liberties fills. I think they're mostly there. I think a lot of just the consequence of the recording itself makes them harder to hear. But I think he left room on songs to showcase liberty on that first song. And I think that's why Richie's stuff isn't there. Yeah, I think that's what they did. I think they pulled it out of the mix to really accentuate those great fills that he was doing. Not that Richie's flourishes weren't good, but I think it was just a an artistic call in the mixing to show Liberty more. And with those sax flourishes going on, it kind of hides those fills a little bit. So we're going into uh, Ballad of Billy the Kid next. Again, more songs in the attic songs. And this has the prototypical na-na-na-na, which sounds like it's only Billy this time, though. Doesn't yeah. sound like it's all of them. We also get a quick John Wayne impression in the middle of this one. That's right. And he his vocals get real gutsy here for a moment. There's sometimes on this concert where, as we've been saying, he's a little more workmanlike, it's a little more polished, it's a little more streamlined. On this one, however, he really puts some grit on it. It's got a little bit more of the edge on this song, which I like. And coming out of it, we've got uh, the band introductions, but <laughs> it's not Billy this time. Nope, it's uh, it Mr. Is... James Earl Jones, I believe. <laughs> yeah, played by one Brian Ruggles. <laughs> that was Brian? That's yeah. so funny, because he... Okay, all right, let's 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 back up and do this in order. Coming out of Billy the Kid, they play the Star Wars theme. A little closer, and oh, you know what we have to look up? What came first? This version or the Bill Murray Lounge Lizard version on Saturday Night Live? Because they're very close cousins. Oh, yeah. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah. You're the Star Wars thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. And then... Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> now, we're going to have to do some timeline work on this real quick, which we're going to edit out for you people. You won't have to listen to us screwing around on Google and YouTube trying to figure out when stuff happened. All right. So this version predates Bill Murray doing it by at least a couple months, because the best we could find is when... Bill Murray does Nick the Lounge Lizard and sings the Star Wars theme is season 3, 1978. And we think then it was also after Billy was on Saturday Night Live. So we're giving credit to Billy for the whole stick. And speaking of the SNL thing, just real quick caveat. Mm -hmm. That was also the date of the infamous fist fight between Bill Murray and Chevy Chase. Oh, right. It was at that show that Billy Joel played. <laughs> So after the Star Wars theme, we get Darth Vader introducing the band. Yes, and Darth Vader, in this case, is played by one Brian Ruggles, which is uh, hilarious. I didn't realize that was actually Brian. I was, I, I thought it was just funny that Billy called out the sound guy, because it kind of sounded like Billy doing it. Yeah, I'm pretty positive it was Brian, because Brian's yeah. got a little bit different of a voice than Billy. Like Billy Joel Tonight or some of those shows where it's like, mm -hmm. will you please welcome Mr. Billy Joel? I'm pretty sure that's Brian Ruggles as well. Did you catch, by the way, that I wonder if people's reputations are getting cemented this early on? 
because the drummer is introduced as, of course, Liberty DeVito on drums. Yeah. It's interesting that because this is only the second tour, you know, yeah. really. I mean, Liberty had only been in the band since, since 76, the end of 75, really. I think Liberty especially was such a, a flamboyant, out front drummer, so to speak, that right. he was catching people's attention right away. Doug was, to me, the unsung hero where he was, you know, holding it together. But yeah. Liberty was such a flashy drummer, a showman, just animated and driving it home. And I think people people got to know him pretty quick, I think. It is a testament to how unsung Doug was and how happy I am we did that episode on him last year because, you know, Doug was the one that got this band together. Doug was the one that was on an extra tour or two before yep. Liberty or anyone else. But, you yeah. know, if there's one Billy Joel band member that everyone knows, it's Liberty and not Doug. Which is a shame, but you know maybe that's how Doug wanted it. Some musicians they want to just go and play and do music, and they're not concerned with being known. So why don't we actually just play this unique intro of the band? It's pretty funny. <laughs> sound engineer mr brian ruggles and so coming out of the band intro here we go into captain jack i had to cross something out on my notes because as i was listening to it the first time i wrote decent better than average and then my last note for the song is cross out the first comment it, it, it grew on you as it went right <laughs> well it grew on me as it went certainly but 
there's a funk break in the middle of it. I know. I, I that was a big note of me too. That it's during the verse, so you decided to take a holiday. That's something that you don't hear often in this song. And then Richie has some great moments at the end there. There's the uh, the big synth stuff near the end. Yeah. Oh, right, right. You catch that? Yeah, I think that was. I'm assuming that was Richie doing it. I believe that's yeah. Richie because Billy's playing piano there. Right. That's a nice big thing that didn't stick around, but I actually like it. Yeah, this is once again, you know, the tail end of them messing around with these arrangements a lot. This is near the end of the, as I call it, the songs in the attic block. This one in particular, they didn't quite have it dialed into where it became for attic yet. This is getting there, but not quite there. Although I do attribute some of that just to this recording. You know, there's a lot of hiss on it, which is fine. It's a bootleg, but you know, yeah. there's intimate moments in, in Captain Jack and there's a couple other intimate moments and larger than life moments on songs in the attic are certainly better curated exactly and yeah like you said you got to remember this is a live radio broadcast so it's mixed for radio it's being mixed on the fly there's no touching up there's no hindsight to where you could be like oh you know we need let's bring this section up here this is just in real time going out on the radio so we get a good night and then we get the encore yep we're going in to say goodbye to hollywood we get a count in and we get a little extra fill out of liberty going into it And a little extra enunciation, once again, on the vocals here. There's an extra fill from Liberty, and then there's a stutter that they put in there, like a little triplet breakdown that goes Mm -hmm. by very quickly. Once again, a vestige of the old tinkering with the arrangements. But the ending is abrupt. They don't have the ending yet. Yeah, I I did notice that, you know, Richie's work on the ending was good. But yeah, they're, they're not quite there yet. Then we get a big drum intro into Only the Good Die Young. Yeah, Liberty going into the shuffle. You know, this recording really made me appreciate what a great introduction that opening piano riff is. Yeah. Like, it's very, it's always been obviously very pleasing, but it just, you know, even when we play it live, when I've done it with a Billy Joel tribute, when I've done it with anyone, you play that intro and people just stop and they know what's coming. And it, yeah. it works. It's so functional that way. This certainly made me appreciate that piano intro more because. Uh, even though the the groove that Liberty is playing prior is fun, it kind of sucks the energy from that intro. That piano intro now especially is so legendary, and it really stands on its own enough. It really doesn't need any tag at the beginning to lead into it. We get that little bluesy tag at the end. Obviously, a new addition to the song because it fades out. Yeah, and I noticed too in the beginning, Billy's kind of swinging the piano a little bit more than usual. So he's always doing this thing on the snare on the floor tom or something like that, or I think he's playing the toms a little more here. So whatever he has to change for the song likely informs what Billy's doing with it or vice versa. And this next song, you know, again, Houston 79, there was two songs that were allegedly cut off. Get it right the first time in scenes. And we were like, get it right the first time near the end? That's weird. (laughs) Well, sure enough, it is right here, second from the last song on this show. You know, it's like Weekend Song in the sense that it's not a well-known song, but it does work for a little hootenanny at the end there. It's fun. You know, I, I love Richie's flute work, and the bridge is great. The bridge is one of my favorites. They pull it off really well live, and this is one that was so hard for them to get together in the studio. If you read Liberty's book, uh, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness, out now. <laughs> Can we have uh, our check, please? Yep. Checks in the mail. <laughs> In Liberty's book, he talks about this song where they just had such a hard time getting it where they would like, okay, we'll record moving out. Great. And then we'll do 
get it right the first time. <laughs> Wasn't happening. All right, now we'll do The Stranger. Great. Now we'll do get it right the first time again. They recorded this song so many times just because they couldn't get the feel right to where it was the last song that they finished or the record or close to it, if not. So to be able to pull it off live, it's pretty nice. Yeah, it grabs it right off only the good die young as well, which worked as a as a device and also just shows that yeah, they finally got it under their hands. We get a little James Brown impression at the beginning of this one too. Oh yeah, that's right. Mm. That's funny. And then we get a total New York send-off. All right, take it easy. I know. <laughs> so anticlimactic, but so Billy. Thank you. Take it easy. I'm listening to it on headphones. I hear, all right, take it easy. I look behind me for one of my uncles. Like, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. All right, take it easy. I guess that makes Weekend Song a, a second encore. Yeah. If he says, all right, take it easy. Yeah, this was the era where Billy was doing a number of encores. I mean, what was the, was it CW Post <laughs> where there's like five? Or yeah. Something ridiculous. Even the old Orpheum Theater bootleg we looked at when he was the opener for the opener. Yeah. He does like three encores. Granted, it's like one song each, but he does three of them. Yeah, he was doing so many back then. And obviously, there's always encores. You know, it's, it's funny. Now there's less of them because it's like everybody knows that there's more songs. It's right. like, okay. <laughs> it's like, you didn't do Piano Man. Who are we kidding? Since this bootleg is called Thunder Road, I feel okay making the Springsteen reference here. But Weekend Song is to Billy Joel as Thundercrack was to Springsteen. Do you know that one? I do. Yeah. So that was... Springsteen's Ender was this like sort of mini epic called Thundercrack and it got it was never put on a studio album and once he wrote Rosalita Thundercrack kind of left the set because Rosalita became the big ender right and so Weekend Song we see Billy end with Weekend Song over and over again even though we've said and I think people will agree it's it's not his strongest song it's certainly not anywhere near a characteristic Billy song and I think that's why a lot of us get turned off by it because it's there's a certain degree of insincerity about it. But it was always his, you know, kind of ending little hootenanny song there. He doesn't have that party block yet, you no. know, which is which is why only the good die young is also in the encore because he doesn't have you may be right and big shot and only the good die young to give people that big finish before he comes back out for his first encore. It's amazing, and all of those would be in place in just three short years. For as insincere as it seems for Billy to be singing this song about, you know, 40-hour-a-week job or whatever, he's also singing to a bunch of college kids who don't know about this yet either. (laughs) Right, exactly. So they're not even really relating to it yet. (laughs) Yeah, they're not hip to it. My last note on this recording is it occurs to me that he's really finding his own voice. When we did Houston 1979, I at least commented that he's in great voice on that. His, ver- his voice is very consistent the whole time and sounds great. Mm-hmm. Now on this one, his voice sounds great, but he hasn't completely dialed in a consistent voice for the whole thing. When we talked about, I believe, 1972, there was one radio recording where he does a couple impressions and then he says on it, oh, you guys like impressions? Maybe I should keep doing that. Yeah. (laughs) And he certainly did. And this is, as we're saying, this is on the cusp of superstardom. We're seeing the seeds of songs in the attic and we're also watching him finalize his own voice because just at least two years later in Houston 79, his voice is 
arrived, identified, consistent, and just full in a way that it's not quite here. It's almost there. The Stranger being the new album of the time, that was the first studio album where Billy really found his voice. To date, that was by far the most Billy Joel of the Billy Joel albums. Like, to me, that's like quintessential New York Billy Joel right there. You know, I really love Turnstile, certainly, but he really grew into who he became on The Stranger. And that was certainly starting to finally bleed into the live shows as the band got tighter as well. And this is really the jumping off point for, you know, the classic band we all grew to love. Now, with that in mind, we want to hear from you, as we yes. always do. We love it. This is an interesting one. Now I want to hear from people who saw him after The Stranger came out, but before everyone realized that, holy shit, this album is a blockbuster. So basically, yeah. you know, the, that month or two before Just The Way You Are got released as a single and zoomed up the charts. So reach out. Let us know. Here we go. Get your pen and paper out, or at least pause your player, and then come back on. <laughs> so glasshousespodcast at gmail.com is the email. You can find us there as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, glasshousespod.com. So reach out. Let us know what you think. We'll watch our language. But you can't see what we're doing now. That's right. Thank you. Take it easy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take it easy.